Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is day 31. Today we'll be reading Book 8, Chapters 10 through 12 in the Ascension edition of the book. We wanted to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has helped support this podcast financially. Your support is so appreciated, and it helps us to reach as many people as possible. And if you haven't already, please consider supporting us at ascensionpress.com support. All right, before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. <laughs> it's conversion day, guys. It is conversion day. So let's get excited. I know you are excited. You don't need further encouragement to get excited. Nonetheless, get excited. But in order to get to the conversion story, we're going to have to work our way through further philosophical proofs against the Manichaeans, that there cannot be two opposed wills. So we made reference to this in the last episode. So there aren't two wills in the strong sense. It's a way of describing the dichotomy of man. Uh, But rather, there's a warring of the flesh and of spirit of sensuality and intelligence. This all in light of original sin. So we kind of gestured towards that in the last episode. We will work our way through it a little more fine-grainedly. There's a nice adverb for you in this episode. And then the fireworks. So, okay, let's get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. 10. Let them perish from your presence, O God, as do vain talkers and those who seduce the soul. See Psalm 68.2. Those who consider these two wills in our deliberation and say that we have two different kinds of minds in us, one good and the other evil. They themselves are truly evil when they hold these evil things, and they themselves shall become good when they hold to the truth and assent to it, so that your apostle may say to them, quote, for once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, end quote. Ephesians 5.8. But they, wishing to be light, though not in the Lord but in themselves, imagine that the soul's nature is the same as God's, and become a fouler darkness through their dreadful arrogance. Thus they departed farther from you, who are the true light that enlighten every man that comes into the world. See John 1.9. Take heed what you say and blush for shame. Quote, look to him and be radiant, so your faces shall never be ashamed. End quote. Psalm 34.5. When I was deliberating upon serving the Lord my God now, as I had long intended to do, it was I who willed, and it was I who did not will. I, I myself, I neither wholly willed nor did not will. Therefore, I was in conflict with myself, broken apart and scattered by myself. And this dispersion befell me against my will. However, it did not indicate the presence of another mind, but rather the punishment of my own. Quote, so then it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. End quote. Romans 7, 17. The punishment of a sin more freely committed insofar as I was a son of Adam. For if there were as many conflicting natures as there were conflicting wills in us, there would be not only two, but indeed many. 
If a man were to deliberate about whether he should go to the Manichaean assembly place or to the theater, the Manichaeans would cry out, Behold, there are two natures here. A good one draws him this way and another. The evil one draws him back that way. For what else could be the source of this hesitation between two conflicting wills? But I say that both are evil, that which draws one to them and that which draws one back to go to the theater. But they believe that the will that draws someone to them can only be good. What then, if one of us were to deliberate, and, amid such difficult strife between two wills, not know whether he should go to the theater or to our church? Would not these Manichaeans also be in difficult straits as well, not knowing what to answer? For either they will need to confess the very thing that they do not want to admit, that the will is good when it leads to our church, as are the wills of those who have received the sacramental mysteries and are bound by them, or else they must suppose that there are two evil natures and two evil souls in conflict within one man, meaning that what they say about the existence of one good nature and one that is evil must be false. Or, otherwise, they must be converted to the truth and no longer deny that when someone deliberates, one soul fluctuates between contrary wills. Thus, let them no longer say that when two conflicting wills are perceived in one man, that the conflict is between contrary souls, between two contrary substances, from two contrary principles, the one good and the other evil. For you, O true God, disprove, refute, and conquer them when one considers the case of a man having two evil wills, asking himself whether he should kill a man by poison or by the sword, whether he should seize this or that estate of another person when he cannot take them both whether he should purchase pleasure through luxury or keep his money out of a spirit of greed, whether he should go to the circus or to the theater if both of them are open on one and the same day, or if we keep expanding his choices, if he might rob someone else's house if he has a chance, or commit adultery if he at that time has the means to do that too. Yes, all these wills might come together at the same time, and all of them may be equally desired though they cannot be acted upon all at one time. Thus, they rend the mind into four conflicting wills, or even amid the vast variety of things that one may desire into more than that. However, the Manichaeans do not yet allege that there are so many various substances. The same is true for good wills. For I ask them, is it good to take pleasure in reading the Apostle? Or what about to take pleasure in a sober psalm? Or to discuss the Gospel? And they will answer to each, it is good. But what then if all of them give equal pleasure, indeed all at once? Do not various wills distract the mind while a man deliberates which one he should choose? And yet they are all good and at variance until one is chosen, to which his then multiform will might now be born whole and entire. So too, when eternity delights us in things above us while the pleasure of temporal goods holds us down below, one and the same soul does not will this or that with a complete will. Thus, it is torn apart by painful troubles, setting eternity first because of the truth, while it also, out of habit, does not set the temporal aside. 11. Thus, I was sick in soul, tormented, accusing myself much more severely than usual, twisting and turning myself in my chains until it might be broken, this chain which now barely, though truly, was still holding me bound. And you, O Lord, pressed upon me in my depths with your severe mercy, redoubling the lashes of fear and shame, lest I should give way yet again, failing to break that slight bond that remained, thereby allowing it to recover its strength and hold me fast in tighter bondage. For I said within myself, Behold, let it be done now, let it be done now. And as I spoke, I all but did it. I all but did it, yet I did not do it. Yet I did not sink back down into my former state, but instead held fast and drew my breath. And I strove again, coming up somewhat less short, somewhat less, all but touching my goal and laying hold of it. And yet I did not reach it, nor did I touch it, nor did I lay hold of it. I hesitated to die to death and to live for life, for my customary evil had a stronger hold on me than this unknown good that should become my new custom. 
And the very moment when I was to become something different from what I was, it struck me with greater horror, though it did not strike me back nor turn me away. But there I stood, held in suspense. Utter frivolities, utter vanities, my ancient mistresses still held me back. They grabbed at my fleshly garment and whispered softly, Do you cast us off? And from that moment shall we never again be with you? And from that moment will this or that no longer ever again be lawful for you? And what were they suggesting when they said, This or that? What was it that they suggested, O oh my God? Let your mercy turn it away from the soul of your servant. What defilements did they then suggest? What shame? And now I much less than half heard them. They did not openly reveal themselves or speak out against me. Rather, they muttered, as it were, from behind my back, secretly plucking at me as I was departing, so that I might look back at them. Yet they slowed me so that I hesitated to burst these chains and shake myself free of them so that I might spring over to where I was called. For with impetuous and violent force, my habits kept saying to me, do you think that you can live without them? But now it spoke only faintly. For on the side toward which my face was now turned, though I trembled to step forward toward it, there appeared before me the chaste dignity of continence, serene, without dissolute frivolity, though uprightly alluring me to come and no longer doubt stretching forth to receive and embrace me her holy hands were filled with a multitude of good examples so many young men and maidens a multitude of youths and men of every age serious widows and aged virgins and continence herself in all these was not barren but was a fruitful mother of children of joys through you her husband o lord and she laughed at me as though to persuade me through a kind of mockery as though she were saying can you not do what these youths and maidens have done can they do it by standing upon their own strength or do they do it in the Lord their God. The Lord their God gave me to them. Why do you stand upon yourself and thus not stand at all? Cast yourself upon him and do not fear that he might withdraw himself and make you fall. Fearlessly cast yourself upon him, for he will receive and heal you. And I blushed in great embarrassment, for I still heard the muttering of those corrupt and worthless things behind me and hung in suspense. And she again seemed to say, Plug your ears against the words of your unclean earthly members, so that they might be mortified. They tell you of delights, but not as the law of the Lord your God does. See Psalm 119.85. This controversy in my heart was nothing other than myself struggling against myself. But Olypius, sitting close at my side, waited in silence to see what would be the ultimate outcome of my surprising emotional state. 12. But when, from the hidden depths of my soul, profound examination gathered together and heaped up all my misery before the eyes of my heart, a mighty storm brewed, bringing with it a mighty shower of tears. And so that I might pour them forth unrestrained, I rose from Olypius, for solitude seemed more fitting for such weeping. Thus I drew away far enough that his presence could not be a burden to me. Such was my state of soul. He perceived it somewhat, for the tone of my voice speaking some words seemed choked with weeping. So I rose while he remained sitting there, filled with great astonishment. I threw myself down, I know not how, under a fig tree, letting my tears flow freely. And the floods from my eyes gushed forth as an acceptable sacrifice to you. See Psalm 51, 17-19, Romans 12, 1. And I spoke to you, not in these words, but much to the same end, quote, But you, O Lord, how long, how long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Do not remember our former iniquities. See Psalm 6, 3, Psalm 79, verses 5 and 8. For I could feel that I was being held back by them. In my wretchedness, I sent up these words, How long, how long, tomorrow and tomorrow, why not now? Why should my uncleanness not come to its end at this very hour? Thus I was speaking and weeping with utterly bitter contrition of heart, when, behold, I heard from a neighboring house a voice that sounded like a boy or a girl, I do not know which, singing and repeating over and over, Take 
and read. Take and read. Instantly, with a changed countenance, I began to wonder very intently whether children would normally sing a song like this in any kind of game, nor could I remember if I ever had heard anything like it. Therefore, stopping the tears streaming from my eyes, I arose, interpreting the song to be nothing other than a command from God telling me to take a book and read the first chapter that my eyes should behold. For I had heard how St. Anthony had heard the words of the gospel being read aloud and received Christ's admonition as though it were being addressed directly to him. Quote, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Matthew 19, 21. And immediately he was converted to you by hearing these words. Thus, I eagerly returned to the place where Olypius was sitting, for there I had laid the letters of St. Paul when I had gotten up to leave that place. I grasped the text, opened it, and silently read the first text that caught my glance. Quote, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. End quote. Romans 13 verses 13 to 14. No further would I read, nor did I need to do so, for instantly upon reaching the end of this sentence, I was illuminated as it were by a light that was serenely infused into my heart, and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. Then, putting my finger between the pages or by some other mark, I shut the book and with a calm countenance told Olypius, and he too told me about what had taken place within him without my knowing it. He asked to see what I had read. I showed him, and he looked even further along than I had, so I did not know what followed. Quote, as for the man who is weak in faith, welcome him. Romans 14, 1. He applied the words to himself and told me about it. By this admonition he was strengthened, and with a good resolution and purpose, most fitting to his character, in which he was very different from me, all for the better, he joined me without any turbulent delay. We went in to tell my mother, and she rejoiced. We told her step by step how it took place, and she leapt for joy, exulted, and blessed you, who are, quote, able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, end quote, Ephesians 3.20. For she perceived that you had given to her for me more than she had begged of you through her pitiful and most sorrowful groans. Indeed, you turned me back to you so that I sought neither a wife nor any hope in this world, standing upon that rule of faith as you had shown her in a vision so many years before. And you turned her mourning into a joy, see Psalm 30, 11, that was much more abundant than what she had desired, in a way that was far more precious and pure than what she had hoped for in grandchildren conceived by my flesh. Okay, so as we made mention, he is engaging here with the Manichees. He's often enough engaging with heretics uh, throughout the course of his career, and the Confessions is no different. The Manichees are a big object of his attention here, but we already mentioned that uh, in an earlier episode that he's thinking about the Pelagians sometimes, and he's thinking about the Donatists at other times. But here we have the, the Manichees in view. And so when he's talking about two minds, you know, or two wills, uh, we have to be careful here of this notion of like two souls or a kind of dichotomy in man that's dualistic, right? That goes all the way down. And so St. Augustine is going to just disprove them by various paradoxes. It's kind of like a, you mean to tell me, and here he, I mean, he patterns himself off the Lord at the end of the, the synoptic gospels, so the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He has these exchanges with the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, etc., cetera, uh, the scholars of the law. And he's like, you mean to tell me, you know, so he's, he's kind of, you know, he's getting into the dialectic a little bit and uh, showing that the opponents of the faith don't have the truth in their corner. So the point that he's trying to make is that we are one thing, that one thing is good, but that we can make a mess of that one thing by sin and vice, and he makes reference often to habit, but never in such a way as to wholly obscure the good. 
or to wholly vitiate or destroy the good. So there remains always at the heart of our humanity a kind of openness to the proclamation of the truth. Uh, the natural law can never be wholly blotted out from the heart of man. It's kind of funny that he shoehorns this right in the middle of his conversion, but alas, here we are, we're doing it. So Father Jacob Bertrand, in thinking about the dichotomy of man and thinking about uh, the division which lies at the heart of our soul here on the threshold or on the doorstep of St. Augustine's conversion, any final words of clarification or even of encouragement? Yeah, I think that there's, it's easy to atomize our lives to sort of bracket out this part and that part and the other part and and fail to see the wholeness of the human person and more importantly the wholeness that Christ calls us to the integration that Christ calls us to the order that he calls us to and that his grace moves us to so yeah saint augustine here is is arguing against the philosophical errors of the manichees who would who would have us believe that there are you know two separate wills or two separate worlds or two separate whatever there might be and and a sort of disintegration of the human being which is contrary to the truth of who we are as as men and women you know we're made in a oneness and a wholeness that's corrupted by sin it's broken by sin but that grace serves to repair and and i guess the the sort of takeaway here on on just the precipice of of his conversion is that grace and conversion and healing doesn't seek to heal or fix or repair or restore just one or this or that part of who we are as men and women but the whole of who we are and this is why um for so long augustine in part has been struggling with the question of his lust right you know that that this too the lord wants to heal it's not as if he can just become a christian and continue to live that life of lustfulness and licentiousness and that sort of thing you know christ wants that too so yeah it's here he's arguing a philosophical thing but it, it relates very practically to the conversion that he's about to enter into and receive really yeah and and as he proceeds through it, he's going to make a reference here to the Lord's severe mercy. You may have read the book by that title by Sheldon Van Auken, uh, but certainly sometimes we encounter the Lord's mercy with a certain severity, and that the Lord is willing to make changes in our life, which we might find difficult at the time, but he provides the grace so that we can do it, even if it's putting us through it, or even if it means, you know, demanding a kind of painful transformation. So the Lord is here prompting and prodding all the way until the moment of conversion. And it's fascinating. St. Augustine will describe how the sins and vices of his former life are there up until the very last minute trying to seduce him back, trying to discourage him, like, how will you make it through the years that follow without these friends of yours, without these, really, like, needs of yours being met? And it's fascinating because, like, in the moment, they seem beautiful, they seem seductive, they seem tempting, uh, but they're going to, you know, they're going to reveal themselves to be what they are, which is to say lies and deceptions and illusions and phantoms, truth be told, because once he enters into a life that is far more real, far more substantial, in the rearview mirror, they will appear to be unreal and insubstantial, even though very vehement, even though very, you know, like charged as it were with emotional and psychological energy, yet nothing by comparison to the life that lies in store. So he's, he's extricating himself, he's pulling himself out from this fell courtship as he learns, you know, in this moment to rely upon the Lord. So, yeah, any thoughts, Father Jacob Bertrand, on the way in which our former life, which seems entirely necessary at the time, comes to assume, you know, a kind of unnecessary quality as we as we grow beyond the sin and vice of, of those former days? Yeah, I think in, um, as we think about the spiritual, perhaps it's helpful to think about 
the physical, you know, that's how we're led to the spiritual anyhow, through the sacraments, this physical reality and, and Christ's incarnation. So we can think of easy examples, you know, and I'm sure you all who are tuning in can think of examples in your own lives where you used to have this or that in your life, whether it be a good thing or a bad thing, and it, it's no longer part and it life might be changed because of it. But, you know, as time goes and as habits develop and change, there's sort of the Oh, I guess I used to do that all the time and I don't really need to do that anymore. Or I guess I used to have that and I don't anymore. And it's, you know, I might be better for it or I'm okay without it or that sort of thing. And I think that's the same with, with our conversion and, and just a couple of previous episodes, you know, we were talking about the reality of the sort of giving up of things to become a Christian, even big things, you know, that we might have thought were like a sort of sine qua known, like that thing that we can't live without. But in fact, they were just part of what we are and actually weren't terribly helpful in making us who we are. So I think this is at the at the fore of Augustine's mind too. Yeah. And then we arrive at that moment when Augustine has the grace of God flood into his life, at least by anticipation of the sacrament of baptism. But when he experiences a conversion, when he lays hold of a conversion by abandoning himself to the Lord. And so he recounts that he draws away from Olypius. He hears the word, whether of a boy or of a girl, he does not know saying the words take and read. You may have heard it in Latin. It's become kind of popular thing to say, tole et lege. And then he picks up the text, which is the St. Paul's letters, which lie there ready at hand. And he reads, not in reveling and in drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So there's a sweet parallel here to the story of St. Anthony, who was moved by a simple passage from sacred scripture, inviting him to a more radical evangelical life. And we have you know, something like that here in the life of St. Augustine, where it addresses the principal sin, which is holding him back, but also poses the invitation because you know, it's not just a negative movement, it's a positive movement. That's to say the invitation to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to identify with him, to take from him his mission, and to have from him his very life. And then we hear as Olypius comes along too from a verse, you know, this is Romans 13, and then from a verse from Romans 1 that corresponds to Olypius' state. And everyone is just super excited, super delighted. And you feel a kind of big sigh of relief pass through the ranks of those gathered in the house. And, you know, even St. Monica is like, yeah, this is the fulfillment of the vision. This is awesome. Uh, so, yeah, Father Jacob Bertram, we have arrived at the kind of climactic point, the culmination, as it were, of so many years of wandering and of sinning. And here we have the liberation, the deliverance. Uh, your thoughts? Yeah. Uh, finally, is my thought. It's like, good. <laughs> finally, he did it. He moved. He acted. He cooperated. I guess in my more cynical approach to things, it's like, about time, Come on. Uh, so there, yeah, I think there's a great beauty in that too. And I think here, or I, I was thinking of St. Monica and what her like actual reaction, I mean, not what he reports would be fake, but like what, like seeing her react as his mother, as someone who's, who's been wait, waiting for her son's conversion for so long, what her reaction to, to this might've been. And yeah, like I must've been such a relief and such a joy, but also was it kind of like the finally like my son gets his his life in gear or is it you know just yeah i don't know there's i guess my loss for words on it kind of expresses like the joy which is an interesting thing too to experience i don't know what some thousand whatever 
15, I can't do math quickly. It's, you know, whatever, 100 years. I'm close enough years <laughs> after his conversion to still experience like the joy of St. Augustine's conversion. Even now, it's like, you know, it's there's a real beauty and power and sort of not like all is right with the world, but like all is right in this moment. Like it, it's, mm-hmm. he's kind of come home and not kind of, he has. And there's, yeah, just a sort of exhale. Even for us who have been reading for eight books, and even in book eight, it's like we know it's coming in this book, but like just get it's just like, okay, good. All is well, as Julian of Norwich said, you know, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. good. The exact number of years that have elapsed since his conversion is a gazillion, I believe. Oh, right. is the I was getting close, term. thanks. Yeah. 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 A gazillion. Yeah. So I just love, I mean, many things about this story, but it just makes you happy to take it in, to read it, to know that it's possible for him, to know that it's possible for you. There's a little experience in my life. It's not comparable because it's not of the same sort, but still is significant to me. Whereas my senior year of college and I was at Steubenville and I was in a household and we used to do Lexio Divina together as a group. And at that stage of the game, I was thinking about becoming a Dominican. I was pretty sure that I was to become a Dominican, but I was planning to work for a year or two or three after school to kind of grow up and uh, hone my human skills. But we were reading John 1, and it's the scene where our Lord passes, and St. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, and Andrew, and an unnamed disciple follow after him. And the Lord says, you know, what do you seek? And they say, Master, where are you staying? And he says, come and see. And then it says, they stayed with him. It was the 10th hour. And then Andrew comes back and says to his brother Peter, we have found the Messiah. And there was something about Andrew's certainty that just kind of tore through me on that Thursday night, sitting down the hill at Heavenly Grounds and continued to work on me for like the next, you know, couple of days such that I think it was at Saturday morning mass down at St. Peter's uh, in town. I was like, holy smokes, like I need to enter the novitiate this upcoming year. I need to talk to the vocation director about entering more quickly because it was like I was managing my vocation. I was trying to I don't know. I was just trying to dictate the terms of my vocation, but I realized that it was addressed to us with an urgency, which can afford a certainty, which can change our lives. And that was just, yeah, that was all there was to be said about it. So I called the vocation director. He was like, yeah, no problem. Cheers. And so it worked out. (laughs) I mean, it would have worked out regardless because in his providence, the Lord provides for each strongly and sweetly in a way that, you know, affords for his glory and our salvation. But it's just the way in which the Lord continues to speak through the scriptures, through our lives, it, it has a kind of potency. It has a kind of power, which always astonishes, whether big or small. So, yeah, final thoughts on the ponderous mercy of God. Um, I was going to say no. I don't know. There's just there's just a, like a, a rest here, you know, like a quiet kind of like goodness, um, not in a sort of cheap sense, but in the, in the fullest sort of sense. So I'm going to let that kind of echo. Boom. Let us rest with the Lord who has seen fit to draw us into it. All right. That's it for you for this book. Uh, We'll look forward to chatting with you over the next book and through the end of the work as St. Augustine continues to unpack what the Lord has done in his life and what he's doing in the sacred scriptures. So, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us, and we'll catch you next time on Catholic Classics. 